Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Matthew Scott, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Kent. Mr. Scott was elected as the Conservative candidate for Kent's Police and Crime Commissioner in May 2016, having previously worked in the office of Sir David Evanet, MP. In addition to his role as PCC, Scott also serves as the portfolio holder for mental health for the National Association of PCCs and is one of their three Brexit spokesmen, as well as serving as chairman of Blue Light Commercial, a company that supports police forces' commercial activity in an effort to save taxpayers' money. Matthew, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, that certainly is quite a lot of weight on your shoulders. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us on the show today. My pleasure. Now, I understand that you and I have something in common, and that is that we are both from policing families. My father was a police chief, and your father and your brother were serving officers. Did this experience draw you to the PCC role? It it absolutely did, and um, that experience of my family is quite important to me. It means that um, I do take a keen interest in the welfare of both police officers and staff, because in my family I have uh, police staff members as well and you know, watching as uh, you know, my father policed in London in the 80s and 90s and now my brother uh, policing in the capital today you see some of the best of policing but also some of the really difficult challenges that they bring home with them mm. as well so it's definitely inspired some of my work particularly around making sure that officers and staff get a fair deal. Absolutely and it's, it's so incredibly important in this period in time as well that they get a fair deal. Um can you tell our listeners who may not be so familiar with the role what the responsibilities of a police and crime commissioner are and why the role of PCC is important? The role of police and crime commissioner was created um, eight years ago now. Uh, and for me, the role of police and crime commissioner is to be a voice. It's to be a voice for victims, uh, for vulnerable people, uh, and for the voiceless, uh, those people who may be feeling uh, disenfranchised from the criminal justice system or policing to speak up for them. What does that mean in uh, practice? That means we set the priorities for our local police force and we hold our chief constables to account with the ultimate ability to hire and fire uh, police chiefs. In addition, um, I'm responsible for services for victims of crime, making sure that in the event that something does go wrong, uh, that they've got uh, wraparound care for them to help them move on with their life at the time that is appropriate for them. Uh, And then finally, I think it's around uh, crime prevention too. Obviously, prevention is better than cure, as everyone uh, will say, but working with uh, charities, with local councils and other organisations to try and stop it from happening in the first place. And we've had many successes in in those areas so far. I think for me, that sums up the role of Police and Crime Commissioner. And it's important for transparency uh, and accountability. We never really had that before with the old system of police authorities. They were... um, bureaucratic, uh, they were expensive, and there was no real, I believe, uh, constructive oversight of how the police service uh, worked. I think that as PCCs, we're doing a much better job of that now. 
Now, in the past, there have been questions raised about the positions of police and crime commissioners with criticisms about the expenses of PCCs in other counties and with the cost of elections compared to low voter turnout rate for these elections, which in some cases amounts to below 15%. Do you feel that these are fair critiques of the institution, or would you rate the position uh, of PCC in regard to value for money for the taxpayer? I think actually PCC personally is one of the best jobs in elected politics because you have the opportunity to really do things. You are um, elected with a mandate to go in and make changes. Uh, and we've done that in, in my team, you know, listening to victims of antisocial behaviour, victims of uh, hate crime, but also listening to the voice of policing too to give them uh, a better say over things. And, you know, here in, in Kent, we had our experience of my predecessor who didn't really understand the role. Um, she didn't really uh, cover herself in, in any glory. And in fact, that really impacted on the reputation and the morale of, of Kent Police over her over her term. And I've been really keen to try and uh, show what the role can do. We've done that. More police officers, crime is falling, more help for victims uh, and things like that. Uh, and elsewhere across the country, there's some great PCCs doing some uh, work too. Katie Bourne, over in Sussex, for example, has done some great work in getting stalking and harassment up to uh, gender. Um, and up in Lincolnshire, where Mark Jones has done some tremendous work around uh, mental health and the system there, acting as a convener of services, showing real leadership in, in pulling people together to instigate change. I believe it's a much uh, valued role, but I think it is incumbent upon us too to continue to sell it to the public because, as you quite rightly say, the turnout has been quite low. Disappoint, disappointment, um, but uh, I think we do have a outside of general elections a problem with election turnouts. Full stop. Uh, I think we need to uh, be honest with ourselves about those challenges, but actually go out and uh, and sell the benefits of the role. Now, of course, uh, you just made a passing reference to Anne Barnes, the former PCC for Kent, who was uh, infamous for uh, her appointment of youth and crime uh, uh, commissioners. Um, what uh, what changes have you made uh, to the institution since uh, taking office uh, to kind of claw back the reputation? For me, it's been about refocusing uh, the attentions of the office, making it more about the people that we serve. And being that voice and, and going out there and, and listening, very proactive uh, on that front. We do it in a very constructive way. It's not about gimmicks. It's not about um, F and Force One or anything uh, like that. No gimmicks at all. I go, I listen to people. I try and act upon their concerns. I try and make those changes. You know, when people are telling me that they've got problems with drug dealing at the, at the end of their road, uh, or they've got problems with antisocial behaviour in their street. Those are just as important as when I'm dealing with victims of domestic abuse and dealing with uh, victims of sexual offences. Mm-hmm. This role is, is about the, the people that you serve, not about the person who holds the office. And I hope that that is reflected in some of the achievements that we've made in getting more police into the force and um, hopefully making that difference. It was recently reported that Kent Police Force must reduce uh, your budget by nine uh, million pounds uh, in the next financial year. What sort of steps are you taking to achieve this goal? Well, that is um, it, it's slightly different to that uh, in effect. So, um, I've always been uh, keen as someone who is responsible for taxpayers' money. Uh, I've always believed in the phrase: "There's no such thing as government money; only taxpayers' money." 
um, is that we should continue to find uh, efficiency and effectiveness wherever uh, we look. Uh, and the reason for that is that we can invest that money in bolstering the front line. Many of those uh, savings within that £9 million figure uh, aren't actually uh, cuts. Uh, they are generating uh, revenue, doing things uh, better. And that means we've been able to recruit more police officers. And mm -hmm. where we've been able to increase our council tax to fund uh, more policing, uh, I didn't want that to go into uh, maintaining things being exactly the same as they were. But the continued drive for efficiency and effectiveness has to carry on every single year. So what it has meant is that last year uh, we were able to recruit an extra 180 police officers. This year we're doing another 180 police officers on top of that as well as more uh, police staff. So I think residents are, are getting a really good deal out of the budget I set for this year. And of course, the ONS has recently released a report within the past few weeks showing that crime in Kent has fallen by over 5% in the past year with over 9,000 fewer crimes in Kent than in previous calendar years. Uh, how have you managed to achieve this? Well, I think there's a, a few things. One, it's police numbers. Uh, I've been saying this for the, the entire time I've been in office. Police numbers do matter. Uh, even when we had home secretaries who didn't want to hear it. Um, I have to say that Sajid Javid, uh, when he was Home Secretary, really got this. Uh, and Priti Patel gets this now. Police numbers do matter. Uh, and that's why I was keen and have successfully achieved a complete turnaround uh, in our police situation. So we've got more police in Kent uh, by the end of this year than we've ever had. And we'll have even more on top of that. So police numbers do cut crime. But it's how you focus their efforts to. Uh, in particular, um, a lot of effort has gone into tackling knife crime and violence because it blights uh, our communities and impacts upon our young people. Uh, that has meant uh, a 24% drop in knife crime in the last year, just by focusing on that effort. Burglary was down by 13%. One of the crimes that residents quite rightly feel um, makes them unsafe uh, and is always there amongst their priorities. That was really important. We focused a squad, a crime squad, who is out there every day bringing more burglars and robbers and thieves to justice. They've secured um, hundreds of charges now in the last year. So it's a mixture of both um, numbers on the ground, focusing the attention and some of the prevention work that we've done. Uh, my violence reduction unit, where we work with the councils and others, um, is doing talks in schools. It's getting the messages out there to young people. Uh, and also to others as well. Um, it's been a fantastic mix. We just need now the criminal justice system to uh, to show to these criminals that um, they're going to get long sentences and that justice will prevail. Well, in balance, uh, more than 7,000 burglaries reported in Kent between January and November of last year has seen the investigation end with no suspect identified, according to police data. Of that number, 71% were categorized as having a last income of investigation complete, no suspect identified, suggesting that these cases never reached a court hearing. What steps are you taking to reduce that figure uh, to a more uh, manageable level? Well, burglary is a priority for me, and I've made it a priority for Kent Police. Uh, we make sure that every victim uh, is contacted by Kent Police, and in the majority of cases, uh, unlike in some other areas, uh, most people do get a visit from the police and where there are forensic opportunities, uh, we send our CSI teams uh, there as well. So by putting in the extra resource, we're focusing on the investigation to bring more people to justice. But we've also recently invested, invested in a scheme where we've won funding from the government to 
really crack down on burglary in some hotspot areas. That includes um, boots on the ground, but also investment in new technology, uh, video doorbells, prevention advice. So we're not we're not letting up in our pursuit of burglars. Um, we want to bring them to justice. I think that uh, burglary is a heinous offence that people should go to, to, to prison for a very long time for. Mm. So that's uh, a work that carries on. Now, of course, as we record this, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, now, during this current period, there's been a lot of strain on frontline workers, including the police. Can you tell me how Kent Police has been coping with COVID-19 and what sort of actions are being taken to protect the people of Kent? Well, I have to say that um, officers and staff uh, and our volunteers actually have done a magnificent job uh, of trying to protect us from COVID-19, um, but also uh, keep themselves safe as well. And they really have stepped up to the plate. Uh, and after a, an initial blip where people were obviously shielding and they were um, uh, getting uh, tested, taking precautions, um, we've actually seen some of the lowest sickness rates in, in, in Kent Police, anywhere between 2 and 3%. Um, so they really have uh, stepped up. They're carrying on working uh, through this and they're doing some great things. Um, in, in terms of what they have been, visible out on the streets, they've been pursuing um, outstanding offenders and bringing in a number of people that were uh, wanted during that time uh, and supporting uh, local communities. You know, they're out there um, at the moment supporting our retail sector and making sure that people are remembering to wear masks. And uh, the last update I had from the, from the chief uh, only on Monday is that we'd only had two or three calls about it, which shows a great deal of support from the public for the measures which are uh, needed. So, you know, full credit to uh, Kent Police. They've been on top of the COVID-19 stuff and uh, engaging with people rather than enforcing. They've broken up potential illegal raves, which we've seen blighting London uh, and other communities. And that impact has been, I think, um, a positive response uh, from the public. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring up the B word, and that's Brexit, of course. Um, as a county sure. that's on the front line of our frontier with Europe, what sort of preparations are you making as a force to deal with the new challenges that come with an end to free movement? And also, if you can touch on Kent Police's approach to uh, migrants that have entered the country via less than legal means. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Brexit, uh, of course, is an important issue in Kent because of our uh, proximity to the uh, continent. However, I supported Brexit. I voted for it. I believe it was the right thing to do, and I'm, I'm glad we've left. European Union, and on uh, day one after the result was clear, I was engaging with Kent Police to say, right, we need to make the best of this. We need to make sure that we've got the powers that we need, uh, that we are working with other agencies to mitigate the impacts of traffic on local communities, uh, and, and also understand some of the other challenges that will uh, come along as a result of this. The majority of the work um, that was required was around our road network and our ports and Obviously, Kent Police doesn't necessarily lead on those. So we had um, our Resilience Forum, an organisation made up of all of those responders who put together some really detailed plans in conjunction with Highways England uh, to make sure that should there be any disruption during the course of um, a hard Brexit or disruption at our ports, that Kent wasn't going to be uh, overcome by it. Those mm. plans are ready should there be um, no agreement when we uh, see the expiration date of withdrawal agreement in, in December. Uh, and those are something which I continue to scrutinise. But also at a national level, making sure that we've got the powers that we need 
Um, European, and I've always been clear about this, European justice agencies want to carry on working with the UK because we contribute a lot. We contribute valuable intelligence and a substantial amount of it. They want to carry on working with us. It should be a, an easy deal for us to do. We just need to get it signed so that work can continue. And when it comes to the uh, migrant crossings, uh, again, you know, this is a really important issue and one that I know that the Home Secretary is taking really seriously because um, of the impact that it will have on our local communities, the danger with which uh, people are taking into their own hands in trying to attempt that crossing, but, but also you know, perhaps the fact that these individuals should be uh, claiming asylum somewhere else uh, within the continent. Um, that work is, is ongoing. Now, Kent Police isn't the lead agency when it comes to this. You know, the Border Force, the National Crime Agency uh, and others will do, but often, in fact, it's and police can be the first port of um, port of call, whether it's because they've raised the um, raised a, a distress, as it were. They phone the police, say they're in distress, or police happen to be in the area, or the police, in fact, often get contacted by members of the public to say this has happened. And it does um, it does mean that Kent police have a, a role to play, um, but the the lead role does does come with, with other agencies. It's and it's something that I uh, continue to discuss with um, chief officers to make sure that. Um, we are making sure that there are uh, reducing opportunities for people to get into our country by uh, these less legal means. Now, do you feel that there needs to be more pressure on the continental authorities to thwart uh, these uh, tries before they even begin? I think so. And I think um, Priti Patel's been really strong on this in going over to meet her uh, French counterparts and others and uh, do some deals around this to make sure that um, either they're not departing from France in the first place uh, or that they are claiming asylum in, in other parts. Um, you know, they often have to travel quite a substantial amount of distance to, to even get to uh, the northernmost parts of France in order to do the crossing over to Dover. And I think that there is a role to play for the European Union and other member states to make sure that they're dealing with uh, illegal immigration within their own borders. Um, I, you know, we don't know the individual circumstances of everyone who's trying to cross. And we have to be mindful of the fact that there are villains out there who are trying to exploit these people, take money off them, uh, to try and help them make that crossing too. So there has to be a really joined up approach of the European Union, the European Justice Agency, uh, as well as our teams at the National Crime Agency, mm. Border Force and local policing too. Well, if we could shift our focus uh, from your role uh, as PCC uh, to your role as chairman of Blue Light Commercial, what exactly is this enterprise and how is it helping to save taxpayers' funds? Well, this is a good example of how police and crime commissioners uh, and police chiefs work together in order to do better uh, in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. So Blue Light Commercial is only a very new company. Um, You can find us uh, on um, on Google quite easily, Blue Light Commercial. Uh, we've been set up mainly to do uh, two things. One is to try and improve policing buying power within the market. Uh, we are 43 police forces and uh, almost as many police and crime commissioners and deputy mayors. Um, and it doesn't make sense for us to do all of that work either individually or in small groups. Um, we spend £2.5 billion pounds a year buying things uh, for policing. So there is uh, naturally, some things that we can do better in the market, not just in terms of saving money, because that is um, quite important, but also get better kit for our officers to better understand the, the, the market. So we will be, uh, see, my chair, chair of the board, and we have an excellent uh, chief executive in uh, Leanne Deeming, who's come across from outside of policing to uh, to run the company for us. 
backed up by the around 400 uh, people who work in procurement within policing itself, upskilling them, giving them more market intelligence uh, and enabling better commercial decisions. So we've got a funding program from the Home Office for around three years, which will help us get off the ground. But I believe that this again shows how we can work together to uh, to do better for police officers and staff and also for the taxpayer. Absolutely. And it's a fantastic initiative. Um, as this is the Leaders' Council podcast, I'd like to delve into some of your views on leadership as a concept. And now, as long-time listeners will know, I always like to start this segment by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? I think it means uh, a few things. I mean, from, from my point of view, I came into this role um, from a very different position. You know, I was elected in, into my role, whereas some people will um, will, will grow within their, their companies and within their industry. Uh, and for me, leadership is about a few things. It's about um, looking after your people. Um, it's about collaboration. Uh, and it's being about listening. Um, I think that if you want to get the best out of people, uh, you have to listen, make them feel empowered to make their own decisions back them when the time comes, but also take responsibility uh, for them as well so that uh, accountability is never lost. Um, I think that the people's individual circumstances also need to be taken into consideration and that you can often get the best out of people by making adjustments to suit their own uh, their own work-life balance and their own style. So um, it's definitely something that I've, I have to admit I've had to, to learn and grow into because going from the role I was in before, which was very senior within uh, Whitehall, working across government departments and uh, the WIPS office and, and things, um, and coming into this one was, was a challenge. But uh, for me, it's, it's about listening, collaborating, uh, and, and trusting the people and valuing them. Where would you say you derived your uh, leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model? Or were you shaped more by circumstance? Um, I think there's a few people that I've learned from. Um, you know, my my main mentor in politics was uh, uh, was David Evnett. Um, you know, a real example of um, how in with with good leadership, with with skills, you can really get things done. You know, he was a, a senior minister within the government, um, and he has been in Parliament and in politics now uh, for over forty years. And I think through uh, learning from how he got things done, but also his determination as well. Um, he lost his parliamentary seat in 1997 um, when, obviously, the Conservatives lost power there. Fought it again in 2001, was unsuccessful, but reduced the, the Labour majority, and then fought it again in 2005 when you know others may have said, well, that's my time, or I can go off for a state seat. He stuck with his community who, who trusted in him, and you know, I think that says a lot about an individual. Mm-hmm. They're willing. Uh, they're willing to stand up for their community, uh, and uh, and do that. So I've learned a lot from uh, from him as, as a mentor. But um, you know, I think there are, there are other there are others um, that you, you can learn from uh, in this area. But I don't think necessarily always in, in the same places. And uh, often it's it's those um, you, you don't expect, like David, who can you can learn from the most. Now, um, of course, one of the most challenging aspects of leadership is dealing with conflict. Do you have a particular method of how you resolve conflict? Yeah, well, we are in a role where uh, conflict is is quite prevalent, um, whether that's between um, the 
between uh, competing priorities or whether that's between competing industries or um, or, or disagreements. You know, uh, I am the Police and Crime Commissioner for Kent and I have my view. The Chief Constable runs his police force on a day-to-day basis and, and, and he has uh, his view. Um, I think when it comes to, to resolving conflicts, I think you really need to understand um, a lot more than what is probably on, on the surface. What, what's lying behind the reasons for the conflict? Where can we work together to try and solve uh, the problem? Where can we get more out of this? And ultimately, who benefits? Because a conflict between a PCC and a chief constable might well be a, a regular occurrence, but actually who wins and who benefits from the decisions made and who loses out by not being able to resolve that, that conflict? And that is, is, is local people. Um, we have a very collaborative approach. I talked about that in, in how I've learned from uh, my experiences of, of being a, a leader. But collaboration is really is really key in, in some of those areas and understanding those those challenges. And we've we've dealt with a few issues uh, recently uh, where we've um, we've had to, to overcome that. But I think that ultimately, because we have a shared vision, I think that conflict is easier to resolve. Now, I must ask, as a person who has proven he can win elections, what is your next step? Will we see you contesting a seat in the House in May of 2024? Well, I've actually got an election in May 2021. Uh, so one of the consequences of uh, COVID-19 was that uh, the election for PCC has actually been put back to, to May 21. So that's the next election. And that's the only one I've got my uh, eyes uh, eyes on because... I don't think in politics you can ever take anything for granted. Uh, you should always go out every election and earn your constituents' trust again. That's uh, what I will be uh, doing. And then, you know, once the PCC review is done uh, and it looks like very positive, we could get some extra powers. Uh, I might seek to try and uh, influence those maybe in, in term number three. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I'm very much focused on, on winning my seat back and, and listening to people's views in the run up to next May. Now, unfortunately, the sand is quickly falling through the glass. So before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Kent Police? I think there's a few things. Firstly, it's recovering from COVID-19. Um, and what, I know that some of these phrases are you know, almost becoming cliched now, but what is the new normal? We've learned a lot from the lockdown in terms of how the organisation works and how we can do things better. Uh, so it will be about recovery for the organisation uh, and uh, gaining, uh, holding on to some of those gains in terms of productivity, but also holding on to some of those gains we've made with regards to crime. So at, at points within the, uh, the first stage of the lockdown, crime was down about 22%. Crime was falling anyway before the lockdown came into uh, force. Um, but we have seen, obviously, because people were at home, fewer burglaries, fewer robberies, and things like that. We need to hold on to some of those gains that we've made and make sure that we keep uh, crime falling. Recruitment continues. Uh, we are still recruiting more police officers. We've got about another uh, 330 that we want to get in in the next uh, two or two years on top of what we've got uh, already. Uh, and crucially in, within that, we'll be making sure that the force is more representative of the communities that we serve. It's a, been a, a long-standing challenge for policing that um, we don't have enough people coming through from BAME backgrounds. Um, uh, we want to improve that. It is improving, but that's something that we've got to learn. So keeping crime falling, uh, more recruitment and recovering from the lockdown. 
Well, Matthew, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program today, and I do hope we can have you back on in a few months' time to see where you are at that point. Uh, But for now, Matthew, thank you. Absolute pleasure. That was Matthew Scott, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Kent. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a 
service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, 
and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.